Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 636 of the podcast and it is in fact Monday the 25th of July 2022 as I record this just before putting it out, (laughs) really last minute this morning. In today's show, I'm talking about writing a bestseller with A.G. Riddle, who writes sci-fi thrillers that have sold millions of books and brought Jerry multiple publishing deals as well as film and TV options. Jerry started out indie and we met uh, at Frankfurt in 2014 and I've included a picture in the show notes and he is now a hybrid author and he has some really interesting thoughts on what he is willing to give up in order to have more time to write. I found it a thought-provoking interview indeed about the deeper questions of a writing career so I think you'll enjoy it and that's coming up in the interview section. So I'm going to jump straight into my personal update this week. I have been in Harrogate this week for the Thakestons Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, which is one of the biggest crime writing festivals in the UK, probably in Europe. And Thakestons Old Peculiar is a beer, if you were wondering. So there's a lot of drinking and talking about crime writing. It is a traditional publishing event, so full of big name authors, agents, publishers, editors and the industry. And I went to some panels. I met up with with a lot of author friends, both traditionally published, indie and hybrid, went to some parties, drank a few too many gin and tonics and generally had a good time and thought a lot actually about career. And uh, yeah, it's good to get away and be at these events that challenge us on different levels. Also, it was the, uh, we had a bit of a heat wave you might have seen in the media. (laughs) Uh, earlier in the week and so uh, I didn't do much those days except lie around and be hot. Anyway, at the festival, I always have terrible imposter syndrome at things like this, but I went to a wonderful panel on my first day, chaired by the multi-award winning Scottish author Denise Minor, who is brilliant, and she's been published since the 90s. And the first thing she said was how much imposter syndrome she and the other long-term writers, uh, and they were all famous panellists, still feel. Um, And that, that panel included Adele Parks and Mick Heron, whose Slough House books I have just devoured. I've literally read all of them in the last month after watching the adaptation on Apple TV um, called Slow Horses. And Mick won the book of the year at the festival and well deserved. <laughs> I don't, he writes kind of spy thrillers, but uh, they're brilliant anyway. I highly recommend them. So Mick Heron. H E R R O N, and yeah, really voicey books. If you read them, you'll know what I mean. So, anyway, it was really interesting hearing that they literally, it was the first thing Denise said is imposter syndrome happens to us all. And it made me feel better. And it's something I've heard from a lot of successful authors over the years. Imposter syndrome never goes away. So it's a, if it's something you feel as well, don't worry, you are not alone. <laughs> and I, I feel like if you go to an author event and you think that people are looking at you in a sort of snotty manner, uh, or you feel like, yeah, 
people aren't making eye contact or anything like that. It's probably because they're feeling like imposters too. (laughs) So the panel was about having a long-term career and how there is always difficulty and disappointment along the way, as well as high points. They talked about how the market is not fair, which I thought was interesting. And there are so many great writers who never make any money or get the acclaim they might deserve. But that, as writers, we're in the grip of an obsession and we can't not write. We just keep going. And I absolutely identify with that. I still have so many ideas about the things I want to write. And I always think I should be further ahead. But, you know, time... (laughs) time comes and goes. And in fact, Denise referred to some of the bright stars who blaze through the industry, many of whom disappear after a few books or a few years, perhaps because of the pressure. Uh, She said, they come, they go, and we're still here. (laughs) That's how I feel a lot of the time at the moment. Uh, And this is why I pay most attention to those authors who still have a career after a decade, two decades, three decades, What do they do that keeps them going? And you know I often ask people on this show about that. At heart, it is this compulsion to write and a love of the writing process and turning thoughts into words. And that is mainly sitting alone and writing. And to be honest, I don't know any writers who love the publishing process or love marketing. Most people want to sit quietly and write and we all have that in common. And this is, uh, they talked in the panel about the difference between being a writer and being an author. And being a writer is the thing we love. Being an author is the job. And I thought that was a great distinction because the job of being an author has aspects that that perhaps we'd rather not do, (laughs) but we have to. However we choose to publish, there will be aspects of the job that you're like, oh, I really don't want to do that. But we have to make peace with aspects of the job if we want to continue doing the bit we love, which is the writing. Denise also talks about the massive and growing space between the debut authors who get a lot of attention and the super famous A-list, the ones who you know, still get a lot of attention. But basically, the mid-list is getting bigger. Now, the mid-list is also in indie. I'm a mid-list indie. I'm not a debut. I'm not a newbie. And I'm not an A-list superstar making uh, six figures a month, (laughs) which some people are. But the difference is that we have so much more control as indie authors. And the panel, for example, the panel talked about how advances for some are the same as they were 20 years ago, as in they are effectively much lower than they used to be. And they actually said, don't give up the day job. And that's just as true in the indie space. Even if you do well with one or two books, don't give up the day job as book sales are never the same month in, month out, year in, year out for forever. And indies disappear just as much as trad pub authors disappear. You, If you've been around long enough, I mean, even guests on my show, if you, I mean, several of them have died now. And I suppose that happens after a time. Uh, time passes and uh, people die, other people move into other careers or whatever they do. But yeah, I do reflect on these things. <laughs> I've been around too blooming long now. Uh, yeah, so my thoughts on the festival actually fit with the theme of my discussion with Jerry Riddle today, which is basically what game do you want to play as an author and with your books? And at Harrogate, at the festival, the game, and you can see the game being played everywhere. And it's great being an outsider because you, I didn't have a game to play 
at that festival. Not this year anyway. (laughs) And so the game is about getting an agent, changing agents, getting a publisher, changing publishers, selling books in bookstores, hitting the Sunday Times list. That's often a discussion. And of course, with a hardback versus a paperback versus an e-book, these are all very big distinctions and also winning prestigious awards. It's also about PR and traditional media and courting attention in established and named newspapers, magazines and TV shows. So that that game is very much in evidence. But the indie game is very different, but it's still a game. You know, we talk about algorithms and ads and digital advertising and but it, and hitting some lists for sure. But they're often American lists. <laughs> But it's still a game if you want to sell books and make money. You have to write and find your niche. You have to publish and get your books into the world. You have to market in some form or another. And most of the marketing discussion is about paid advertising like Amazon ads and and Facebook and TikTok and all this kind of thing. But I came away feeling like right now I'm happier playing the indie game. I did see with traditional publishing that you have to interact with a lot more people. (laughs) And success is generally equated with being more famous and well-known and getting this kind of media even. And whereas with indie, I often feel that it is about um, ranking and income and that kind of thing. But as an indie, we can actually, we can retreat and just do the writing. And if you learn ads and other ways of marketing, we can stay below the mainstream radar. We can reach readers directly and we don't have to play that media game. And there are some exceptions. I met some particularly some very happy APUB authors, that's Amazon publishing authors, um, Amazon's traditional publishing side of things known as APUB. They said they would never be invited on a panel or have their books in the festival store, which is about the same as indie authors. But they were making very good money, reaching readers and just generally very happy. So I loved uh, meeting happy people happy with their publishing choices. And of course, you can span both worlds as A.G. Riddle has done and we'll talk about in the interview coming up. And in fact, I do have an idea that I am considering writing and pitching, but that's something to consider for 2023 after my pilgrimage book. And that would probably be under another name, something I'm considering because it's quite a different idea to my usual type of JF Penn fiction. So regardless of how you want to publish, you have to choose the game you want to play. And of course, you can do it differently per book, per series, per author name. And I talked to several authors who relaunched traditionally under another name. So that's something we all do. And a lot of indies write under multiple names too. I also, while I was there, I spent some time looking at the crime category of books in the UK and I realised that I am not playing the game in the right way for my particular crime series, my Brooke and Daniel series, which are crime thrillers slash psychological thrillers. And there are currently three books in that, Desecration, Delirium and Deviance. And Desecration is one of the books I am most proud of. It's If you read that book, you will see inside my head. (laughs) And it's the one where I really found my voice. And I realised in my research that crime books here in the UK are either traditionally published and playing that trad game, or if they are indie, doing very well in this category, they are in KU. Like Literally, that is what they are. And the KU plus ads game is not one I usually play. (laughs) 
But as I was sitting there and talking to a very successful indie author at the uh, festival, I'm going to give it a go. So Desecration, Delirium and Deviance, as well as the trilogy box set, the ebooks are now in KU. And I do have a lot of books now, so I can play different games for different names and different series. So with JF Pen, I'm still wide with all my other books. I have over 35 books now, so I can play these different games. So three of them, three plus a box set in KU. Now, obviously, you, I mean, I do wide with most of my books. I'm exclusively wide with how to write a novel as I record this on the 25th of July. It is still only available from my Shopify store at creativepenbooks.com in all formats, uh, although it's now on pre-order in all the usual places and out mid-August everywhere. But I've never done KU for this crime series and I'm going to try that with the ebooks and see how it goes. And that is the beauty of a bigger backlist, which is you can try different things. So I hope that gives you something to think about. What game do you want to play with your book, your backlist, your author name? Are you playing the game effectively? And what might you want to try playing differently? And of course, this will differ on genre, on author, on where you are in the world, on your time of life. There are so many different aspects. So everyone is playing a different game and that's something important to remember. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments uh, on the last episodes. Christy says, having just independently released my debut junior fiction chapter book, the episode with Becky on long-term marketing calmed me down and refocused my ideas about marketing. Perfectly timed. Thank you. And Rodney Malacy on YouTube said on Becky's uh, episode on marketing, these podcasts are gems indeed. Thanks to Rob, who sent a picture. He stopped in Kentucky on the way from PA, I guess that's Philadelphia, to NM. New Mexico, maybe? I don't know. I'm guessing. (laughs) By some street art of a buffalo, which I enjoyed. And he said he was listening to my Mapwalker trilogy. Thank you, Rob. And also a lovely picture from LG, the rogue of space, holding the paperback sample of my first book. I was so excited I couldn't even wait to walk back from the mailbox before opening the envelope. This picture is totally what you meant about how one feels when they get to hold their books for the first time. And it was a lovely picture. Thank you, LG. And the look of just sheer delight uh, on his face was wonderful. And also a really nice message on YouTube from Short Bible Studies. He says, thank you, Joanna, for sticking with the podcast. I recall the fascination of discovering your podcast prior to you hitting 100 episodes. I even remember the episode where you first learned about Patreon and wondered aloud whether you could see yourself participating. And he says some other nice things, which I won't read out, but... Patreon did turn out to be a good choice and I will thank my patrons in a minute. Uh, I don't know if I would have continued without it, to be honest. Uh, I will continue podcasting until I am bored with it. (laughs) And I haven't reached that point yet because things keep changing. And as I just said, the game keeps changing. And uh, yeah, but I really appreciate my supporters on Patreon because uh, it does take time. And in fact, someone also said to me this week, uh, do you think your career would have gone better or would go better if you stopped podcasting and wrote more and I was like oh ouch ouch I don't want to think too hard about that because it is possibly true but I do have this side of myself 
that really wants to help other people. Like I have a real self-help side. Those of you who have been around for years know that originally I wanted to be a sort of British Tony Robbins, but without the bouncing around energy, a sort of introvert Tony Robbins. I always wanted to be a self-help writer and I have done that over the years. Career Change was my first book. It was a non-fiction book, a self-help book, helping people change careers. And so I do have this side of me that really does want to help other people. And I think um, if I just say wrote fiction, I would struggle because I still want to help other people. (laughs) So yeah, the podcast, as I said, I'll continue up to the point where I don't continue, but I haven't reached that point yet. Right, so you can tweet me at the Creative Pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, which I use multiple times in my editing process and features quite a lot in my book, How to Write a Novel. So once the full draft is finished before I print it for hand edits. I open up um, Pro Writing Aid and I open up Scrivener because I write in Scrivener and uh, you can integrate Pro Writing Aid with Scrivener. And so I just go through my Scrivener document within Pro Writing Aid and check it all before. And then I print it out for hand edits, which I do. And then I update my Scrivener and then I go through again with Pro Writing Aid and um I will sometimes use it again just before publishing. So it is one of my absolute must use tools in my writing process. So, you know, why use software to help you? Why don't we all just learn all the grammar rules, all the writing rules and apply them ourselves? Well, we all use tools to improve our process and we are also often blind to our writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. Now, Pro Writing Aid knows all the writing rules and helps you apply them. And of course, you can choose not to make changes as you like. It helps with making your writing more active, finds repeated words, finds words you can improve, uh, helps you with sentence structure, grammar, punctuation, typos, spacing problems and more. It even has things like, is this the right kind of word? Um, For example, using the word mankind, it will now say, do you want to use a word like humanity instead? Uh, It integrates with all the usual word processing tools and as I said with Scrivener which is how I use it. Now uh, won't an editor do all of this? Isn't that what we pay editors for? Well yes they can do this but I would rather pay my editor to fix the things that software can't. Now as brilliant as pro writing aid is it cannot read the manuscript as a human (laughs) or as a whole and comment on bigger issues like character development or inconsistencies or plot holes. So I use pro writing aid as an essential tool before sending to my wonderful human editor and in fact you heard an interview with Kristen Tate my current editor as I record this in 2022 and we talked about using Pro Writing Aid as part of the process. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna J-O-A-N-N-A that's prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and especially the futurist episodes, the in-between episodes, all sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new patrons this week, Miriam Giles, Carlisle Brook, 
Jennifer Lauer and Amy Pendino. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You are all amazing. And as I said uh, before, it means so much to me that you get so much from the show, that you find it useful, that you want to contribute a few dollars or more than a few dollars or euros or pounds or there's many, many currencies on Patreon now. And you get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which went down well this month. I think I was more honest than usual. (laughs) I think I'm getting more and more honest in my old age, to be honest. Uh, I am 47 now. And those of you who know what this age feels like know probably why. (laughs) But yes, uh, join me on the Patreon, behind the scenes at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. A.G. Riddle is the best-selling author of 11 books with over 4 million copies sold and translated into 24 languages. His latest novel is Lost in Time, a time travel thriller. So welcome to the show, Jerry. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing after quite a different original career. Yeah, I'm someone who didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. It's something that sort of is a second career for me that I came to in my late 20s, early 30s. I mean, I I started an internet company in college and I did that for 10 years and I I really enjoyed it. I mean, I like creating software and love the startup environment, but I don't know. I mean, I had had some success in my career, but I didn't really feel that I'd found that thing that I felt I was really qualified to do and was meant to do with my life. So I was kind of just at this point in my life where I was reflecting to say, you know, when I leave this earth, what do I want to be proud that I've worked on? And I think if you get 10 years into a career, I think you learn a lot about yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to periodically reflect and say, why, why am I not achieving the sort of success I want or what went well, what didn't. But the thing that I found is that what I loved about my job was creating something, you know, web-based software is what we were creating. But running a company is something that uh, I didn't have much interest in. Like I grew up, my dad owned a sign company and my grandfather owned a lumber company. I grew up around business and I guess you sort of via osmosis inherit some kind of interest from your parents and grandparents or your idols. And But I don't, you know, I was looking for this career that would be more creative that I could sort of step away from running a business. And so the thing that I really loved in my life was reading and reading science fiction. I would come home from work every day and read. And and I just thought, well, I'm going to try to write a novel. And I thought, you know, if this takes off, I'll keep doing it. If it doesn't, just try to figure something else out. But that was 2011. And it took me two and a half years to write that first book. Mm. And I I was trying to think what year we met at Frankfurt. Would it have been like 2015? Maybe. I think it was 14. Yeah. 2014. Maybe it was yeah. 15. I don't know. My memory. I have two kids now. My memory's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> well, I don't think you had kids at the time. <laughs> I definitely did not have kids at the time. <laughs> but yeah, so when we met, it, I'd read, I think, the first book. And you said, I remember that you said to me that you intended to write a bestseller in the vein of Michael Crichton. And I love Michael Crichton. I read all the books. And then I, when I was researching this, I went to your website and there's a quote from Publishers Weekly saying, 
Crichton-esque thrillers don't come much better than this. And I was like, oh, that is fantastic because I knew that's what you set out to do. But I mean, the biggest question then is you you just said there, I'll try to write a novel and if it works, I'll carry on. And look, many of us try and write a bestseller and it doesn't work. <laughs> so, so how did you craft a book? How did you go about this in a way to kind of craft a bestseller? Because it's not luck, is it? Well, I think it's a bit of both, right? I mean, to your point, I think that you can be very purposeful about it. And I think for me anyway, I I knew one of the advantages of starting this career a little later in life is that I knew myself really well. I knew that if I wrote a book that didn't really get much traction, that I would be discouraged and that I would probably give up on it. And so the first stuff I wrote, man, I thought this is terrible. Like I'm never going to be able to do this. And reading my writing, I was like, man, this is is not good. So, I mean, that's what took me two and a half years. I probably wrote that book, I don't know, a dozen times. My wife at the time, you've met Anna and she thought I was going nuts. I mean, she was just like, you're going to have to be institutionalized. You know, there's something very wrong with you to work on something in isolation for many years. But I'll say that this is, so the decision that I made that I do think launched my career was to basically focus on my strengths and avoid my weaknesses. I knew for my debut novel, I would not be the strongest dialogue writer or the writer of characters and maybe plotting and sort of all the things that I think that that every novelist gets better at over time. But I felt that the science and history, I, mean, it's a, I remain a huge geek and I love learning about science and history. And I, that's something that I felt like I could do pretty well. And I felt very confident. In it. And I also felt like there was an audience out there, an underserved audience that was hungry for these kind of science and history-based thrillers. And so what I would say is I chose my genre, I think, very well. I mean, what I loved reading were those books. There's not a lot of them. And then, but Space Adventure and stuff like that is what I read, but there was so many people writing it. And I thought doing it pretty well, I chose this genre that I felt like had a big audience. I felt like I could write and and sort of fit with where my skills were. Mm. I feel like Michael Crichton is kind of science, yeah, science fiction thriller, but not really known as space, obviously. I mean, a couple of them, I guess, <laughs> but most <laughs> of them were not. And I feel like, I mean, you said there you, you found a niche and there was a hungry audience in that niche, but I, I thought you were kind of mainly in the sort of mainstream thriller niche now. Yes. And I think, well, The Atlantis Gene, that debut novel, I positioned as a science fiction thriller, but I I think it has these aspects of action and adventure and it's sort of a scientific mystery. I I do think it crosses genre lines and that helped it. I I think there's been tons of readers that that didn't appreciate it for one reason or another because it had so many things in it. But, But yeah, Crichton... Typically, a thriller author that you know thrillers that are grounded in science. But I think for the course of my career, since that debut, one of the things I've been trying to do is figure out what what am I really interested in. And there's been this shift, at least for me personally. It's I veer a little more towards the subjects that I'm interested in, and maybe less toward what I think is going to sell or analyze in the market. And I think that's just a function of mental health and just trying to grow as a writer. Mm. And obviously you talk there that you're a science geek, a history geek. So how do you do your research? What does your research process look like? Well, my process has evolved a lot. Like the first book, The Atlantis Gene, I mean, I went overboard with the research and I did my research 
for the most part on the front end. And I wrote my outline, I did my research, and I probably over-researched that novel. And I, one of the things I found is that if it's something I'd learned about and researched and had really solid, I, I was inclined not to take it out of the novel, even when I needed to. And it was like slowing down the pace. And, and my wife was my first reader. And she's like, gosh, it's just page after page of this stuff. Like, you know, I, I think it's a good story, but I got to cut this stuff down. But so I think my process now is to, I typically start with an idea that I'm personally really interested in. And I think if you're going to write something grounded in research, it's got to be something that you're really excited about because it, it will get laborious. I mean, it's time. And I also think that your enthusiasm for the subject comes through on the page. I mean, I think readers sense this authenticity. So I'll, I'll get a subject that I'm interested in, and then I'll go to like popular science, generally popular science or popular mechanics. And I'll try to find articles that are similar on that subject to try to find what is the broad audience? What aspect of genetic engineering or you know AI or nanotechnology? What are the angles that are popular or interesting? And then I'll deep dive. I, I will say that YouTube is a huge resource that you can now get like videos of conferences and people that you basically couldn't get access to talking about deep diving on subjects. So I would say that my research process is top level, find that subject get some popular articles, and then I'll do an outline. And then when I come to the point where the character needs to go deeper, I'll do my research kind of as I'm writing my draft. And I think that cuts down on the time. I think it makes it more accurate. And you sort of throw out less as well, I feel like. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean about YouTube. Like I was just, I'm listening to your lovely accent. I, I could listen <laughs> to your voice all day. So <laughs> well, really likewise. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And not that I'm saying your accent is like this, but when I was on YouTube searching an Appalachian snake handling church and <laughs> it was, yeah, and I was watching all these videos and the way they spoke, I mean, going deep on YouTube into people's voices, it just can make such a difference, can't it? It, it almost takes it into another realm. Yeah, for sure. And I do think it, it sort of gets you into the mode and the mindset of these people who work in the field. Like in 2015, 2016, when I was writing Pandemic, I was able to find CDC employees that were at conferences and the stuff they talked about is not something you'd find in the book. Like the thing that scares them on deployments in Africa when there's an outbreak is driving around. Like that's the most dangerous thing for them. They have their PPE. They, they know their job really well. They're not scared of getting they're scared of getting Ebola, but they're like their top concern is driving around uh, and getting in a car accident and getting hurt really badly. Anyway, but yeah, the Appalachian snake handler, I grew up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, yeah, that's an interesting subject, like people speaking in tongues and just crazy stuff. But. Yeah, that's really fun. But yeah, you can find all sorts on YouTube. Interesting that you mentioned your book, Pandemic, and you wrote that, you said 2015, 2016. How did that go in the pandemic? Like, did you sell an absolute ton or did you actually just, did people not want to read about a pandemic in a pandemic? Well, well both, right? Like at the beginning, I remember this, like, at the beginning of the pandemic, because I mean, it was apparent to me once you started to see the how contagious it was and what the case fatality rate is going to be a big deal. And also the, the asymptomatic period for carriers. But it's like, I remember it was February or something, and we were going to launch on like a lock screen ad with AMG and for pandemic. And so they email me back and they're like, hey, you know, this 
because of this outbreak in China, we're going to have to pause this for two weeks, but the pandemic should be over in two weeks. <laughs> you know, I'm back. I was like, you know, this is sort of indefinitely pause this and in no way is it going to be over in two weeks. But uh, to my surprise, early in the pandemic, that book really took on a new life. Like it sold a lot of copies and the UK printer head of Zeus did another printing of it. And then as the pandemic wore on, no one wants to read that, but I don't know what mm-hmm. it's selling now, but it's like, I know that it's exceedingly less popular than it has been historically. And I think we're all, we all kind of have this pandemic fatigue. And I think people read it early to try to, to try to get a sense of how this thing was going to play out. or to, I think we all read to kind of understand the world around us. And I think there was some of that, but now it's just like, you know, pandemic, last book in the world. Anybody yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. Yeah, I remember watching that movie Contagion early on yeah. uh, in the pandemic. So it's like, oh, I need to kind of know what's going on. But what's funny is I actually started a Scrivener project when we started to hear about what was going on out of China. And I, I was going, oh, this would be great for a novel. And literally, it was probably by middle of February. I was like, this is no longer great for a novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just ditched that Scrivener project. I was like, nope, not happening. But it, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, given you wrote that beforehand, that's awesome. But let's just come back to so a bit earlier. You said 10 years into a career, you need to take a look at what's going on and assess your strengths and weaknesses. And you said you started in 2011. So we are over a decade (laughs) into this next career. So given what you've done and the books you've written, so are you assessing where you are now? And what are your thoughts on whether you're, are you pivoting again? Or what's, (laughs) what's going on with your assessment there? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that I'm pivoting. I mean, definitely, I mean, 10 years is probably too long to reassess. I think we should probably all be doing it maybe annually or more than that, but I'm sort of behind the curve. But yeah, I think the last couple of years have been reflecting and trying to, I think happiness is about trying to figure out what you want from the things that are important in your life. Like writing, writing is something I still really enjoy. Like I love sitting down and string words together and trying to tell a story. It, it makes me happy and I feel fulfilled at the end of the day. I would say that since 2011, March of 2013 is when the book came out, the first book. I mean, things have changed a lot. I mean, the job feels different. I think self-publishing is a bigger a bigger task than it was in many ways. I mean, it's like when I published that first book, I mean, it was like I put it on Amazon. My wife went on Facebook and it's like, my husband's written this book. Go get it. I mean, it's pretty much all we did, right? And I think... <laughs> The market was different then. There were fewer books and it was a 99 cent, 500 page book that had value for money. So now I'm trying to figure out where do I fit into this new, this changing landscape? I mean, I'm someone who likes to write and that's, that's what I really like about this. So the other things, I think, you know, if you want to do a job, you can't just pick and choose. All right, I'm going to only do these tasks. It's like, what is the job? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I considered starting a publishing company, but I just felt like that ultimately would take me further away from writing, which is what I was trying to do. And I also like my business career. One of the things I learned is I'm not, not a really great manager. And so it's like, do I really want to go try to manage a company? I don't think so. But yeah, so I mean, that's what's led me to traditional publishing and trying to focus more on writing. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I'm not a great manager either. I'm barely a good manager of myself. Lately. Yeah, same here. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let alone well, anyone else. But no, I'm the same as you. Like one of my decisions is I do not want to grow a company. And I think it's good. Like you said, you have to know yourself and know what you like. And the universe will keep teaching you these things until you learn it. And luckily yeah. you learned that the first time around. So you haven't done that. But let's talk about your publishing journey then. So you mentioned there you uploaded that first book, 2013, you said. And your wife said, oh, it's on Facebook. Or said on Facebook, it's available. And things started to happen. But then how do you go from being just an indie author with one book to you've got several different publishing deals now, I think. So how how did that happen? Did you pitch for these things or how did your development in the publishing world go? Well, I, I would say that I, as far as my career, I've been a bit more reactive than proactive uh, on the whole. Like I, when I started out, I knew nothing about the publishing industry. I mean, I've been an avid reader my whole life and I've read on Kindle and I started reading self-published books and that's why I was so aware of it. But I knew a great deal about selling things on the internet, having run startup companies that did it. And and so it's like self-publishing on Amazon was like, that really wasn't much of a decision. Like that's something I knew. I also wanted to get the book out there to figure out, is there an audience? Should I be doing this? Like writing a query letter and trying to get traditionally published is, I don't know, that was never really in the realm of possibility for me. But, and so since then, I, you know, agents started contacting me, the movie deals kind of came about that way. And then my fourth book, Departure, which I think I was actually writing or just finished that up when I met you in Frankfurt, but Harper Collins bought that, bought the rights to it. But I'll say that like, I've only ever self-published ebook English and then in print in the US, like we have a warehouse and books on pallets. But uh, Head of Zeus has always published my uh, print-only deal in UK and Commonwealth. So, so what's happening now is that Head of Zeus, which has been publishing me for, I don't know, nine years now, is taking over the ebook. They're expanding from print-only in the UK Commonwealth to North American print and then worldwide ebook English rights. Mm. Oh, with new books, but not the old with books. New books. Right. The old books is something that I think is on the table and we're sort of thinking about right now. Mm. That's so interesting because I know a lot of very successful indies like yourself, originally indie, um, who have sold backlist in order yeah. to almost like you're saying, get it off your you're not off your chest, but kind of move it over to someone else's responsibility, even though you must know that you will make less of a cut out Definitely. of that. Yeah. I mean, my sense is, I don't know, but my sense is we'll probably make less money, but I do think I'll be able to spend more time writing. I think I'll be happier. I mean, so the question is, are you able to write more? And thus, do you get back to even just from greater production? I don't know. Mm. But as you said, it's you're making choices around lifestyle at this point. And That's it. it's not like, oh, I could make more money that way. But as you say, you might well end up doing that anyway. But you mentioned some movie deals and everyone's like, oh, movie deals. Everyone wants a movie <laughs> deal. So how did that come to pass? Well, the so when CBS Films optioned Lannis, I, I didn't have a film and TV agent. I was living in Florida and one of my neighbors was this entertainment attorney and he like negotiated the deal. But, but since then I, I, my literary agent in New York has gotten me a film and TV agent. 
And so the film and TV agent did the departure deal, but I mean, the film and TV stuff, it's like, I don't know. I try not to get my hopes up. Like it's something that I hope it happens in my lifetime. I mean, it looks like some of my newer stuff will get made before my older books, but I don't know. It's like, for me, always a bridesmaid, never a bride on the movie stuff. So maybe someday. As long as they keep paying for options. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. That's what happened. I mean, the reality, if people listening don't know, the reality is that most things never get made, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a long road. And I think I mean, the thing I told my agent the other day, I was like, I, I don't care about this option money. I, I really just want to find somebody that will actually make this happen. And he's like, no, we need the option. And they're the experts on this stuff. So mm-hmm. I I just sort of let them run with it. And I just try to be patient. I, I think that this I think there are so many things that can drive you crazy in this business. And it's like the only hope for sanity is just focus on the things you can control. And like writing the books is what is what I can control. And that's what I try to focus on. That's interesting, though, because as an independent author, you control a hell of a lot more than what you're now controlling. And actually, you're talking about giving away more control, licensing more of your rights and controlling less. So it, it, how does that work? I think it's a balance. It's sort of like, well, in return for controlling this, you then have the responsibility for this and you get the work too. I mean, with, with control comes work and the responsibility. And it's like, are those things that I care about? Maybe, maybe not. And it's sort of like, I, I do think the world benefits from specialization, right? And so it's like, if you, if, if I'm in this business and my part of the business is writing the books and to a certain extent, promoting the books to my audience and to readers, well, gosh, that's something I love. I want to focus on that. A publisher's, you know, their focus is, all right, how do we get the metadata right? How do we get the right cover or the right description? How do we distribute this to as many bookstores as we can and get those bookstores excited about the book and promoting the book? And those are things that's like, as I went down the road of starting a publishing company, I mean, I felt like, gosh, I mean, this is a whole new, this is a completely new animal that I don't really, it's sort of like, I just want to carve out the piece that that I care about and the piece that I think I can do really well. Yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, no, I I appreciate your, well, one, your, I don't know whether it's just the accent, but you're so relaxed. You're like a relaxed <laughs> I and I, I do when I met you I was like yeah Jerry's pretty relaxed dude <laughs> but I, I think that your character says a lot for that but it's interesting so before as well you talked about focusing on strengths so obviously writing is a strength and ignoring you basically said ignoring your weaknesses rather than trying to I guess get better at your weaknesses is, is that is that what you feel well I think there's two things I mean I think that like one of the things I learned early in my life is that you've got to focus on your strengths if, if you ever want to get anywhere in life. And I think your weaknesses are things that you can work around and you can get better, but it's like, we're all given a certain amount of talent. And it's like, if you're not, you know, if you're not a great dialogue writer, a writer of dialogue, you can get better, but you're never going to be the greatest in the world. It's like, you, you're going to top out at some point it's limited by your, the way your brain is wired. So I think that when I began writing, there were things that I was like, I think I can get better at this, but I know I'm never, I'm never going to be like, I'm never going to write one of these literary novels with these deep characters. I don't think, but, but I think that knowing your weaknesses and trying to work around them is sort of the wind at your back. I mean, if you can do that, 
great because you don't have to be good at everything, right? Like you just need to be good at the stuff that you do and what you make a living at. So, mm. Yeah. And I do. I mean, I agree with you that the job you said earlier, like the job feels different, you know, obviously having been in this since 2007, 2008, the job of being an author. And I feel like you do have to do everything if you want to be successful independent but what you're doing which is licensing some of those rights or maybe all of those rights I think is is really it's really interesting and it is the trade-off between what you want to do and I guess what you could learn to do but you're acknowledging that might be a weakness so why why do it essentially (laughs) it's a strong message that (laughs) yeah well I think and and I think it's sort of like when you're in a child, like when we, you started self-publishing long before I did, but it's sort of like when you, when we first got into it, I mean, a lot of it was about getting your cover right. How do we get the description and then the book, right? And then, but I think ads is this whole other thing. And it's like, well, I know I'm not a great manager and it's like ads or something like I haven't even looked at my ads in months and I just don't, it's sort of like I go down that rabbit hole and it's like, man, well, I've now spent six hours on this today. And it's like, I could have been writing another book. And I think we're all realizing that the costs of things in our career are not always financial, right? There's a cost in your, there is a cost to your mental health. There's a cost to your time that you could be doing something else. And then it's like, for me, I only have so many good writing hours in a day, but I do want to use those to write. And that's what I want to be focused on. And it's like, I've felt like, all right, well, if the job changes a little, all right, now we need to do ads and now we need to do TikTok or whatever it is that comes up. But it's like, at some point you're just like, I know that this would benefit my career, but I also know that I suck at it. I don't want to do it. And <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing the things I'm doing. Wait, are you doing TikTok? I'm not doing TikTok. Oh, that, oh that would goodness. be an example of something that <laughs> like, I'm, I'm such an introvert and like, I've seen all the you know, the details and the, it's like, here's what you can, you know, the page flip and you do a quote and all this. And I don't know. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Cause I'm also not doing TikTok. I've been like, no, I don't do video. Like we're on audio only right now. I just don't want to do video. So I don't want to do TikTok and I don't want to even look at it. Like literally I, I have, I've, <laughs> you know, the only ones I see are the ones that people put on Twitter. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but um, no, I, so let's come back to the craft because that's, clearly important. One of the things I've noticed about your books, because I'm in the UK and I see your books in bookstores, so Head of Zeus obviously doing a good job, is that they're really long. Like they're super long (laughs) books. They're like doorstop books. And I wondered, what do you think about that in terms of, did you intend to write long? Because I feel like in the thriller niche, that's actually less of a thing and do you think that's helped your book stand out I do I mean I think that well I would call the books epic science fiction they're a little different in that they don't really fit like if you say all right this is what is the norm for the genre you know certainly the plot and what's the content of the books is a little outside of and I think having I personally think that a longer book you know, I mean, it can go really bad. Like if the reader is hating it on page 150 and they've got 400 more to go, it's like, <laughs> that's not a, not a good setup. But I think if, if they really love it, if I'm reading something I love, I don't want it to end. And I think that longer books give readers an opportunity to bond more 
with the characters. And I think they care more about books that they've spent more time with and have more of an emotional connection to it. So I think that, I think it helps you in reviews in terms of the number you're getting. You probably get some bad ones just because of the length. But I think if you can write a good book that's, that has some link to it and, and people spend more time with it, I think it helps you. Mm. I definitely did notice that about your books being different in that way and that it, it's it does stand out in the I know you say they're sort of epic science fiction, but I still feel like they're in thriller. I actually think they get shelved in thriller here in the oh, UK. Really? Yeah. And covered as thrillers. Yeah. Uh, more than kind of science fiction. Uh, it's funny, like I feel like I don't particularly read science fiction, but I've read almost all your books, I think. So they are, yeah. So it's interesting. You're definitely a crossover, crossover audience. <laughs> <laughs> crossover. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's head of Zeus. They're shelving it in the right place, I think, to get it. I mean, our bookshops are smaller than you have them in the US. But I did want to ask about this too, and what maybe it's the length, but you have 11 books as we record this. And I mean, that's a lot for a lot of people, but it is a lot less than a lot of other authors. So there is a bit of a thing in the indie author community that the more books you have, the better. And if you don't have more books, then you'll never make tons of money. But like you've sold over 4 million copies and obviously with the movie deals and everything, you're doing really well. So what do you think is the truth around the size of your backlist and how that impacts a career? Well, it's a good question. And I think it's a good debate. And my sense is that maybe it varies by genre. I mean, the science fiction thrillers, I mean, the ones that that do take some research and that have a lot of plot twists. And I do think they maybe take a little more work than, say, a contemporary romance or something something that you're just writing a lot based on your own experience or an urban fantasy or something that where there's not that extra overhead. So I think I think maybe some of the work takes longer. And I'm obviously every author has their own pace. And I think I've gotten faster as an author over time just from getting more comfortable and refining my own process. But I don't know. My my view is that or what I've always tried to do is write the best book I can every time. And it's like I think some years I'm better than I am other years from just what's going on in my life or how focused I am. But if you're getting better, you're writing the best books you can. Just write as many as you can while doing that. I think that's the, sort of the key. Uh, and then I, I think there is some some genre impact there. Yeah. Mm. So you said your process has improved. So what does your writing process look like now? You said you outlined. Do you just type or do you dictate or how do you, what's your writing process? Well, good question. So, I mean, the big change for me has been how detailed the outlines are. Like for the Atlantis Genius, like, the outline was really almost like a first draft. I had the whole thing. I, mean, I had the trilogy planned out. I mean, it was just like the invasion of Normandy. I mean, the whole thing. And just like, and then I got I don't know, uh, 30,000 words in and the whole thing just like completely changed. Because, you know, the characters, like when you're writing an outline, it's like, do you really know these characters that well? And so you get to a point, you're like, ah, that character wouldn't do that. This doesn't really seem natural anymore. And so you have to adjust your outline or I do have to adjust my outline. Maybe others have uh, better outlines, but I would say that my process has changed and that my outlines are a lot looser. They're more broad. And I also, so my process, I've started dictating my outlines and that helps me just get the outline out, use Dragon Dictator, naturally speaking, or whatever it is. 
And I mean, if you read it in Scrivener, it looks horrendous. Like some of the stuff is phonetic. And I was like, what am I even saying there? But <laughs> it helps you get the outline down or it helps me get the outline down. And then I typically type my drafts on a Neo writer that has, you know, it's that little electronic, you can find them on eBay to Neo, NEO writer. And you know, there's no internet, there's no spell check. I'm an atrocious speller and it drives me crazy when I'm in Word. And it's just like, I don't know, you, you screwed that up. All right. Yep. You missed another one. But yeah, I write my drafts in, on a Neo and then import it and see all the literary or grammatical transgressions. And, and then I edit in Scrivener and go to Word. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it's interesting. You dictate the outline. I feel like a lot of people are kind of hybrid dictators like that because it is very hard to dictate finished words. <laughs> it is for me. Yeah. Mm. I can't get my voice right. I swear, I guess I've type different than I speak. Or I don't know, maybe because of my Southern accent, the software can't understand what I'm saying. But yeah, the dictating the novel hasn't, I've tried it. It didn't work for me, but or I didn't yeah. like the way it turned out. Yeah, I go in fits and starts. Well, we're almost out of time. Tell us about the next book, your latest book, Lost in Time, out oh. September 2022, I think. Yeah, September 1st. All right. Yeah. So Lost in Time, it's, I would call it a time travel murder mystery. And it's about a widowed father whose girlfriend is murdered and he and his daughter are accused of the crime and the evidence is ironclad and they'll be convicted. And this takes place in the near future in which murderers aren't sent to prison. They're sent to the past, 200 million years into the past, to the time of the dinosaurs. And so the main character, Sam Anderson, makes the decision to confess to the crime, to save his daughter. And so he's sent to the past. And so his daughter stays in the present and her mission becomes to clear her father's name and figure out how to get him back and to figure out who really committed the crime. So she has kind of this murder mystery to unravel. And then Sam in the past has sort of this survival situation. And he also, there's some secrets waiting for him back there. And so it's a time travel science fiction thriller that I'm pretty excited about. With, with an edge of Jurassic Park then? It has dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, that's the first thing I told my agent. He's like, you know, what is this book about? I was like, Danny, it's got dinosaurs. And, <laughs> and things went from there. I love it. I mean, that is a great premise. I'm certainly going to read it. It's funny. I think I looked at it and went, oh, you know, I'm not really into time travel. Now you've told me that. It's, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm totally getting that one. Uh, I love a time travel with dinosaurs. Gotta love dinosaurs. Again, Michael Crichton, it just got me whenever that year was when Jurassic Park came out. Goodness, must have been 90 something, 93? <laughs> Yeah, 92, yeah, 92, 93, yeah. I'm around there. Oh, no, that's awesome. Right, so where can people find you and your books online? Yeah, it's agriddle.com, and then the links to all the retailers are there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jerry. That was great. Thanks for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Jerry interesting and perhaps you can have a think about his question about reflecting at the 10 year mark or wherever you are in your writing journey, one year mark or five years or whatever. And as he said, uh, it was near the beginning, but he said, why am I not achieving the success I want? What went well and what didn't? What do I need to change? And coming back to my introduction where I said, what game do you want to play? And are you playing by the rules of that game and what do you need to do to play it differently. It's something we always need to keep coming back on. 
So this week I've got an in-betweenisode on blockchain, copyright and intellectual property management with Roni Levy, which is focused on how the architecture of blockchain could transform copyright and intellectual property for creators in the coming years. And then in next Monday's show, I'm talking to Sasha Black about lessons learned from three years as a full-time author. And Sasha is a friend, so we have an honest, open conversation, which I know you'll enjoy. In the meantime, happy writing. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.